Let's turn to the book of Mark chapter number 11 this morning. Mark chapter number 11. I'm sorry, Mark 12, brother. Uh, you can go to 11 if you want. It's good. But we're going to be preaching out of 12. So, uh, Mark chapter number 12. And if you find your place in Mark 12, we're also going to end up in Romans 12. And so I'll ask you to mark Romans 12 as well. We'll read Mark 11, and then we'll go over to Romans 12, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, pray together, and then read Romans 12 together. If you found Mark, Mark 12, let's stand to read verse number 1 through 12 this morning. Mark chapter number 12, 1 through 12. And he began to speak unto them by parable. Amen. And certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it and digged a place for wine fat and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And at the season he sent the husbandman a servant, sent to the husbandman a servant, that he might receive from the husbandman of the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. And again he sent unto them another servant. And at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head. And sent him away shamefully handled. And again he sent another and they killed. And many others beating some and killing some. And having yet therefore one son, his well beloved. He sent him also last unto them saying, They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him, and killed him, and cast him out of the vineyard. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandmen, and give the vineyard unto others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected is become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hold on him, but feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them, and they left him and went their way. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we ask you to add your blessing to the reading of the word of God. Father, as we continue in the message this morning, that Father, you would be honored and glorified in what is said and done. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help me, Lord, to communicate uh, this message to your people in this hour to be a help to them and a challenge to them as we walk forward for your glory. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask all these things. Amen. You can be seated there if you would. And I'm going to turn to Romans chapter number 12, and I'm going to read verse 1 and 2. And Romans 12, 1 and 2 is probably one of the more familiar passages of Scripture in the New Testament, especially to believers who've been in church for a little while. Um, if you don't know this passage, I would commend it to you um, and its instruction to us. And the Apostle Paul writes in verse number one, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now that's a very common passage of scripture, and I would imagine the majority of us here are familiar with that, that those verses. Uh, but I, what I want to argue this morning is how that passage of scripture and our passage in Mark 12 connect. 
And there's a connection between these two passages of Scripture, and we're going to kind of draw that out for you this morning, and we'll come back at the end of the message and connect those two texts together. And so kind of just keep that in the back of your mind as we walk through our text this morning. So back in Mark, in chapter number uh, 12, in Mark chapter 12, we find the parable of the vineyard owner or the owner of the vineyard, and he is going to do uh, a work of planting a vineyard and then leasing it out. And we're going to look at this text in just a moment, but one of the things that we are blessed with uh, in our modern day is that we have a copy of the Word of God in our hands. Can you say amen to that? And that was a, that was a very hearty amen. I appreciate that. Uh, we're, we're, we're thankful we have a copy of the Word of God. Uh, and one of the blessings of that is the chapter and verse divisions that we have in our printed Bibles is that we can look up uh, a passage of scripture and we can say, hey, we're in Mark 12 this morning, uh, we're, in, we're in Matthew 2, we, and we can find those passages of scriptures very quickly because of those verse divisions. But those were not originally in the Bible. Those are, those are additions, those are reference points that help us find it out. I mean, you imagine somebody coming in on a Sunday morning and saying, hey, I'm going to be reading for you from Isaiah and we're going to be in the 642nd paragraph. Well, by the time you found it, the reading would be over, the sermon would be over, and we'd have eaten lunch, um, because there would be very hard to reference those things. And so when, when public reading of the Scripture became something that was possible for people to follow along with and for people to actually have a Bible at home, and that was because of the printing press, then the idea of the chapter and verse divisions was incorporated, and it's a wonderful tool for us to be able to reference it. As a matter of fact, if you were to go to my office uh, or Pastor Caleb's office this morning and pull a commentary off the shelf, you'd be able to pick a verse in the Bible, pull that commentary down, and with that reference, go to uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 1, and find commentary on that verse. And it's a wonderful ability to be able to collate and to reference things. However, there is a weakness to this, and the weakness is found in that a lot of times we get to the end of a chapter and we think the thought process has stopped. And so we stop thinking about what we were thinking about, and we start a new thought process because we've come to the end of the chapter. And not every chapter in the New Testament and the Old Testament leaves us on a cliffhanger like the old Hardy Boy books did. Anybody read Hardy Boy books when you are a kid? All right, yeah. Uh, they don't all leave you on a cliffhanger, and so... You need to connect the fact that what is happening in this chapter is connected to what's happening in the next chapter. And those are connected and they're a continuing story. This is especially true when you go to the, um, the, the epistles, the epistles of Paul. They are a letter written and these letters are one letter written to a group of people in a certain time and they're flowing. Now that's less the case when you go to something like the book of Psalms where the Psalms are written as individual poems and they're broken up. But in our gospel narrative that we're in this morning, uh, Mark is writing this narrative through, and what happened in verse uh, chapter 11 is connected to what happens in 12, and the same is true with the text we read in Romans, and we're going to put that together for us as we go through it. And so we're reminded of what took place in chapter 11 briefly. First off, we see the triumphant entry in chapter 11. Jesus is riding, if you remember a few weeks ago, he's coming in on the colt of a donkey. He's riding in, declaring victory and peace to those who will hear him. Uh, he's coming in and they are crying out to him, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And they are, they are magnifying him and lifting him up, so much so that the people around says, hey, tell them to stop doing this. Tell them to be quiet. 
And of course, Jesus responded, if they hold their peace, then the rocks will cry out. And so we see this picture of his praise going on, and we'll hold that in our mind as we go in. And then we see the picture of the fig tree, and how the fig tree, Jesus comes to it in full leaf, expecting to receive fruit of that tree, and he gets there, and there's nothing but leaves. And we were reminded that that fig tree was a, an illustration of the nation of Israel, specifically the temple and the religious worship of Israel, and how that there was nothing but leaves there. It was all kinds of dressing and uh, appearance, but there was no fruit. There was no substance on those. And then we took and applied that to ourselves, and we said, Lord, let it not be that we be Christians who are nothing but leaves, that we not just have a good outward appearance, but there be a real substance to our faith and our walk with God that we are bearing fruit. And of course, Jesus comes in, and he cleanses the temple. And he comes in, and he says, hey, uh, this, this place uh, is to be a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of thieves. You have adulterated what it was about. It was supposed to be about dependence upon God and glory to God. And you've made it about consuming other men's wealth for yourself and taking it to yourself. And, of course, Jesus comes in and turns over the tables and rebukes them and sends them out. And then we ended chapter 11 with a challenge to his authority. And his authority was questioned by these same people. They came to him saying, by whose authority do you do these things? And of course, Jesus masterfully turns this whole situation around. And he says, the question is not really by whose authority do I do it, but let me ask you, where did John get his authority? And they're like, uh, we can't tell. Because if we tell you, then, and we say it was God, then you're going to say, why didn't you believe him, and why don't you believe me? And if we say it was man, then everybody that's listening to us right now is going to pick up a stone and stone us. And so we're in kind of a no-win situation here because we don't want to be your disciples, but we don't want to die. And so they said, well, we can't tell you. And then Jesus ends in verse number 33 of chapter 11, and let's read that together. And they answered and said unto Jesus, we cannot tell. And Jesus answering saith unto them, neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak unto them by parables, a certain man planted a vineyard. And so the narrative is continuing on into chapter number 12, and we're seeing this storyline go. Jesus is still talking to the same group of people in the same context. It's still in the Passion Week as he's walking toward the cross, and we're journeying to the cross here together. As we're watching this journey unfold, he immediately jumps into this. The question of his authority is still on the table, and he launches into this parable. Now, let's look at the parable if we could. In verse number one, we see the planter and the owner. And he began to speak of them a parable, and a certain man planted a vineyard. Notice all that he does here. He sets up a hedge about it. He digged a place for the wine fat. He builds a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And so we see this picture unfolding. A man of wealth and means who owns the property, plants the vineyard, begins to cultivate it. He puts all the tools that are necessary, a tower to watch over the vineyard in its production, a hedge around the vineyard to keep it from animals and those that would come in and steal from it, uh, a wine vat for them to capture uh, the juice and the fat of the wines when it's, when it's crushed and all of the ability to store it and to market it. All of this is taking place. Great investment has gone in to the caring for this vineyard. And then we walk into the next one, and what happens is we see in verse number 2 through 5, and at the season he sent to the husbandman a servant that he might receive from the husbandman of the fruit of the vineyard. 
Now, isn't that familiar with us? Because he had come to a fig tree looking for fruit and found none. And now we're talking about somebody who has a stewardship of a vineyard that he's returning to to get fruit from that vineyard, and they give him none. And so again, he is coming back to what he has planted, what is his, looking for fruit, and he's finding none. They're empty, they're dead, they're fruitless. And we see this picture again uh, on display, and what do they do? He's looking for fruit. He said he sent his servants there, and what do they do to them? If you would, in verse number uh, 2 again, uh, he comes to receive fruit of the vineyard, verse number 3, and they caught him and beat him. And sent him away empty. And again he sends unto them another servant. And at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head. And sent him away shamefully handled. And again he sent another. And him they killed. And many others beating some and killing some. And so we see these servants coming in progression. To go to the vineyard. To receive the fruit of the vineyard. That belongs to the one who owns the vineyard. And they're beating them. They're killing them. They're stoning them. And they're sending them away empty. And person after person after person. Servant after servant is put away. And I think it's very uh, uh, telling when we read verse number 5. When he says, and many others. This was not a one, two, three servants. And all right, three strikes, you're out. I'm coming down there, going to deal with you. No, he's sending servant after servant after servant after servant. Servant after servant. And I think we could go back to the Old Testament and we could say Isaiah and Jeremiah and we could Lamentations and Ezekiel and Daniel and Hosea and Joel and Amos and Obadiah and Jonah and Micah and we could go through all the prophets of the Old Testament. We could even back up and say in Moses and David and we could see these men that God sent and each one of them were rejected in a sense and pushed away. This is all what Jesus painting the picture here. And we start to see as we get into the middle of this parable what he's referring to. He's referring to the nation of Israel here. This vineyard that he had planted, that God the Father had planted and had sent many servants to expecting fruit from that vineyard and had received none. As a matter of fact, they, they murdered the prophets and now they wanted to whitewash the sepulcher of the prophets. They wanted to raise up monuments to the prophets but they would have nothing to do with them while they were alive. And here we come to this place now in verses 6 through 8. And having yet therefore one son. Hmm, I wonder what he's talking about here. Does it connect to you in your mind? It does in mine. And look what he says next. Not only does he have one son, verse number 6, but his well-beloved well-beloved son, he sent him also last unto them, saying, they will reverence my son. Those husbandmen said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. I mean, the, the, the audacity of this behavior. The owner's son, the, the one son, the well-beloved son, he sends him down to the vineyard saying, they're going to respect my son when he gets there. They'll receive him, and they'll give him the fruit of the vineyard, and I'll have the reward that is owed me. And they said, no, we won't do that. They said, we're going to kill the son, and we're going to cast him outside the vineyard. And that's exactly what this parable goes on to describe. They plot to keep the vineyard for themselves by killing the son. They wanted to retain their authority. They wanted to hold on to what was theirs. They didn't want to give up the vineyard. They didn't want to give up the benefits of the vineyard. 
And then verse number 9, there was an assumed judgment that would follow. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others. Judgment was expected. Destroying the husbandmen, judging those who had done wrongly, and giving the vineyard to another or to others. The owner would take the stewardship from those he had given it to and give the stewardship to someone else. Someone else would now be responsible to carry forward the message of the kingdom and carry forward the message of God's glory to the nations. This is what he's prophesying. This is what he's saying in the, in the message here of this vineyard. The parable ends and application lands in its full weight upon these men. Look what he says in verse number 10. And have you not read this? The scripture, the stone which the builders rejected, is become the head of the corner. The stone the builders rejected is become the head of the corner. And so he's saying, all right, you've taken the son, you've cast him out into the field, and you've got your vineyard now. And he said, now let me quote a victor, uh, verse of scripture from the book of Psalms for you. Have you not written in the scripture where it says the stone that the builders rejected has become the head of the corner or the chief cornerstone of the building that the vineyard maker is building. And he said, this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And he's pointing to something that is coming. These men start getting the picture of what he's saying. They rejected the stone. The builders rejected. That's interesting to me. You know, who should know best the quality of a stone? Builders, the ones who work with them, the ones who would cut those stones and lay those stones and, and build with those stones, and yet those who should have known best the quality of the stone that stood before him are the ones that rejected him the most. The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and it's of a building that they had no concept of at this point. And it is marvelous in our eyes. They are rejecting the one true cornerstone. Now the image of the vineyard is by no means a foreign vineyard to the audience that was listening. Or a foreign image to the audience listening. Vineyard is used on more than one occasion in the Old Testament to describe the nation of Israel as a whole. Uh, I'll give you Psalms 80 for your homework. You can go home and read that and your devotions maybe this week, and see that picture of a vineyard laid out there. But I'm going to turn us to Isaiah chapter number 5 uh, very quickly as we see this clearly put in front of us. Isaiah chapter number 5. And we'll begin in verse number 1 here, and I'm going to read rather quickly, and so I'll ask you to follow along. He said, Now I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. Listen to the description of it and see how it parallels with the parable. He fenced it, gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and made a winepress therein, and he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard, what could I have been done more to my vineyard than I have done in it? Wherefore then I looked that it should bring forth grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. 
And now go to, and I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and I will, it shall be eaten up, and, and break down uh, the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste, and it shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. And I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, behold, oppression, for righteousness, and behold, a cry. And so what is the picture here? The nation of Israel is this vineyard in view. And Jesus is telling the story of this vineyard. And when these men that are listening, these Jewish men, especially the leaders, were heard him talk about a vineyard being planted and a vine dresser turning it over to someone to lead it, they would have immediately remembered Isaiah's prophecies and others of Israel being the vineyard. So Mark then in this narrative is showing for us a clear connection between the question of his authority and the abuse of their stewardship. By whose authority are you doing this? And Jesus is now turning and saying, you have abused the stewardship that you have. And he's pointing it out to them in very clear terms. When he calls the son his beloved, he is using the exact same terms that the father spoke from heaven at the baptism of John. My son, my well-beloved. It's the same terms. It's the same thing they would have heard when John baptized him and raised him up out of the water and the spirit descended on him like a dove and he said, behold, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the picture, and Jesus is using that terminology. And by the way, that's no accident. He just brought up John the Baptist a second ago. John the Baptist is fresh in their mind, and he's saying, hey, remember what happened at John's baptism when he baptized me? Remember the message that was said of me? The well-beloved son is here asking for fruit from the vineyard, and is your plot right now to cast him out and to be done with him. That's what you're planning to do. Not only so, but he quotes for them Psalm 118 when he talks about the cornerstone. This cornerstone, it's no accident that he's quoting from Psalm 118 because it was the crowd on the day of the triumphant entry that also quoted from Psalm 118. When they said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. And he said, and this is the, the stone which the builders rejected had become the head of the corner. And this is marvelous in our eyes. He was doing the work of changing this over and he was prophesying of the evidence of who he was. The parable is in essence the answer to the question, in whose authority do you do these things? And this was not lost on his opponents by any means. The Bible tells us in, uh, back in Mark chapter number 12 again in verse number 12, and they sought to lay hold on him. But feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against him. They knew this parable was against them. They got it. They understood that he was coming after them, and he was coming after them with both barrels in this one. And they were angry, and they wanted to lay hold on him. They wanted to put him in chains, and they wanted to, they wanted to fulfill the very prophecy he had just read. The stone the builders rejected. And so... The parable, in essence, is an answer to the question, by whose authority? As an added instruction here, we're reminded the, of his apostles of the fig tree, no doubt. The apostles had to remember it as the owner came to the vineyard looking for fruit and found none. 
And then we see here in this parable, as in we see in the word of God, that the, word ha- the Lord has the last word in all matters. Because though the stone that the, builders of the, that the builders have been rejected, that same stone will become the headstone, the cornerstone, the foundation on which the church is built and the glory of God and the kingdom of God marches forward. And it was something that these Jewish men couldn't quite get their head around yet. And he is unfolding it in a process because God is going to, in time, use a really strange and wicked group of people to do this with. He's not going to do it with Israel. He's going to do it with some outliers called Gentiles. That's you. That's me. Gentiles. We have nothing to boast in when it comes into anything other than Jesus Christ. We're not of the nation of Israel. We're not the chosen people. But God has reached out and called Gentiles from every nation and language and tribe and gathered them together for his glory. And Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of that work. And it's going for his glory. So the last word is the Lord's. Is it interesting here that those who were building for the kingdom of God, had rejected Christ. And now by rejecting Christ, were rejecting God. Let me say this morning, you cannot reject Christ and accept God. You can believe there is a God, but you can have no relationship with a God apart from Jesus Christ. There is no middle ground here. It is through Jesus Christ that we have relationship. Jesus didn't say, I am a way, a truth, and a life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. And these men would reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Judas himself would kiss the very door of heaven, but walk away into an eternity separated from God. And here we see this again, Matthew Henry writes in his commentary on this text. He says, Jesus is the stone which the builders refused. He would go and they would go on building without him. They would go on building their kingdom without the chief cornerstone. And this proved the ruin of those who made light of him. Rejectors of Christ are rejectors of God. This is heavy, and this is important that we understand it. You cannot have a relationship with Almighty God except through the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I are not worthy of that relationship. We have no access outside of Jesus Christ. And these men had rejected the very foundation of what they said they were seeking, a relationship with God. They would continue to build, but they would build without Christ. They would continue to labor on their own, but they would do so without Christ. And I think maybe we have been guilty of that at times in our own lives, have we not? Of building without him. I think the church could be guilty of the same thing, of trying to build a church, but leaving Christ on the outside. We make no apologies for the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ as the only hope of heaven. None. It is the only hope there is. And that hope is extended to whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That hope is extended and reached out, but it is the only hope. There is no other hope. And so they rejected him because he didn't come to, on their terms. And by the way, 
you are not going to come to Jesus on your terms. You will come on his or you won't come at all. He is the only way. His terms are the only terms. Let's just see a couple of observations about this this morning as we move toward application. See the investment of his vineyard. See the investment that he put into his vineyard. Now, when we're reading the parable here, we could definitely see the tower and the vine, the wine press and the vats and the, the, the hedges around the vineyard and all the things that were done. But those are all pictures. If we look back to the nation of Israel as a whole, we see the miracles that he performed, leading them out of, the, of, of uh, Egypt into the promised land. And miracle after miracle after miracle is performed to provide for his people. And he's preparing them a choice vine in a choice land for his glory and his purpose. We see the prophets that came their way and they proclaimed. We see the judges that would come to the nation of Israel and call Israel back to their God. And more judges would come in and call Israel back to God. We see the ministry of Samuel as Samuel came in and he proclaimed God for who he was and called the people back to God. We see even men like David who were given as a shepherd over God's people to call them back to him. And then even after the divide of the kingdom, as we mentioned earlier, all the prophets walked walking through the ages, standing up and crying aloud to the people of God, saying, come back, repent, come back, repent. And he labored long with these people. The scriptures were given to them on Mount Sinai, were handed down to them from Moses, as Moses went to the top of the mountain and received the very handwriting of Almighty God. And he proclaimed those words to the people, we see all the effort that he had done to invest in his vineyard. We see the extent that he went to to reach them. He did not just send one servant or two servants or three servants. He sent many servants. Now make no mistake, God is in control. God is not a God sitting back wringing his hands and begging us to do something. But God is long-suffering. He has his hand extended and he has offered salvation and he continues to offer it. And many look around today and say, well, where is the sign of his coming? Everything's been the same since the beginning of time. Where is God? And he said, hey, the Lord is not slack as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And the reason God withholds his return even today is because he's a long-suffering God that continues to extend the invitation for the glory of Jesus Christ and the praise of the Father. The invitation is still extended today, and he comes offering time and time and time again. I mean, how many of us could testify this morning of his patience with us personally? Of how many times I've wandered far away from God? How many times do I sing with a songwriter, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love? Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. How many times have I done that and yet God calls me to himself again and again in his patient, long-suffering hand. And this is the picture of him caring for his vineyard and caring for those who were caring for his vineyard. Of longingly and patiently calling them to himself. We see the evidence that they had to deny to reject Christ. There's a preponderance of evidence that these men look square in the face of the very beloved Son of God and walked away from Him and crucified Him. You see, this parable is a history lesson of Israel, but it's not only a history lesson of Israel, but it is a prophecy of the church. You see it here. 
And he t tells us already, we read it, and look in verse number 9 of our chapter here. He said, what therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandmen and give the vineyard unto others. God has taken the role and the purposes of his New Testament covenant and he's given it to Gentiles. And he's raised up a thing called an ecclesia, a church. And we're to go with the message of the gospel. Now by no means is he done with Israel. As a matter of fact, we're going to see in a little bit, he's doing that, that he might provoke Israel. That one day he would call every nation and tribe back to himself. And there will be all of every place, but every person has been understood to be a sinner in need of Jesus Christ. There's only one access in to the kingdom now, and it is through Jesus Christ. There is no other access. It's not a birthright. Because we're of our father Abraham, we come by faith. So we see this picture unfolding, the prophecy of the kingdom in front of us, the prophecy of the church. So what then is our admonition? Let me say this morning, we have no kingdom to build but his kingdom. None. There is no kingdom here to build but his kingdom. And if we are building another kingdom, we are not building in his kingdom. And we are being worse than the vine dressers that he's addressing in this parable. You see, the vineyard is not ours to do with as we please. And let me just put that on a personal level. I have no kingdom to build but his kingdom. And his kingdom is not mine to do with as I please, but that is his kingdom, and I can't do as I want. We have the instructions of Scripture we must follow. And when we stand upon the principles of the Word of God, we do not do so because we just like to be a thorn in the flesh of the society we're in. We do so because we must obey it, because he is the Lord of the vineyard. We are not. We must follow his instruction on how the kingdom is carried out and how the work is done. We will fail when we are, we fail to work in his kingdom, rather, when we do, we are because we're holding on to our own kingdom. We fail to work in his kingdom, it's because we're holding on to ours. We're doing our own thing. So the direct application here this morning. The direct application of our context of our text this morning is Israel. He's saying to these group of people, you were given a stewardship as a nation, and you have not carried out that stewardship. You have punished and killed the prophets who came before the Lord. John the Baptist was executed just a few years ago now. And here we stand, he's saying, and the stone the builders rejected. Because you're about to take the very son of the vineyard older. You're going to cast him out and kill him. But there's going to be a restoration, or can we say a resurrection. And he will become the chief cornerstone. He will be set in place. So the secondary application this morning, I think, is to the church. If Israel was to be good stewards, the church is to be good stewards of what God has placed in us. Let me say this morning that when it comes to building church, the Lord builds the church. Nobody else builds the church. It's not the job of the pastor to build the church. It's not the job of the deacons to build the church. It's not the job of the growth group leaders to build the church. We're not going to strategize to build the church. It is the Lord that builds the church. And we rest in that. And by the way, this morning, so if we are building something, we are building it without Christ and we are not building the church. 
if what we are building is anything, if, if that's our goal is to build up something and we're going to build it and we're going to make it and we're going to form it in our own image and make it like we want it, then we're not building the church and we're not building with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be laborers in his harvest, yes, but he is the one that's doing the work, not us that's doing it. Last Sunday when you got to see the video of Nick uh, accepting Christ as Savior and he shared his testimony I love the part in his testimony where he said, I just began to realize there was victory in me over sin that I didn't know before. And he says, and it wasn't anything I was doing. It's what God was doing. God was doing the work in him. So we cannot do the work. He must do the work. So then, as we look at these pictures of how they connect, we see the nation of Israel being given a stewardship. And then... God taking that stewardship from them and giving it to the New Testament church. And then he gives us a purpose and a plan. I want you to see it unfold in Romans chapter 11. I didn't say 12, I said 11. Go to Romans 11. Now, when we turn to Romans 11 to wrap all this up, there is absolutely no way I'm going to be under, under pack Romans 11 or 12 in any length at all. So I'm going to need your absolute undivided attention and patience. And you can go home and read this for yourself later. I just want to give you a cliff note here. Romans 11, Paul has been writing for 11 and a half chapters on redemption, salvation, the work of God. I mean, we go to the mountaintops. We go to the valley of man's depravity. We, we, we are going to go all over the place. And it's powerful. It's a powerful thing. And he gets here to the end of this, and he starts talking about what's the role of Israel anymore, and what are they doing, and he starts talking about Israel as being this olive branch that was cut off. And the analogy has gone from a vineyard to an olive tree, but we see this picture here laying down, and we can still hold to a vineyard here, but this picture of it changing over now. And he's saying in verse number 17, he said, and if some of the branches were broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. Boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. And thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. Wow. That's heavy. And he's, he's talking about Israel and how Israel has been broken off. And then he has done this thing of taking Gentiles and grafted them into this branch. He's placed them in for a purpose. And he's not done with Israel yet. He's going to come back one day. And as a matter of fact, we're going to see at the end of this chapter, you could read it later for yourself, that he's concluded them all sinners so that he might show mercy on all. And he has a purpose for all of that of calling them back to themselves. He said, but they were broken off. And now we've taken these nasty old Gentiles and grafted them in. You know, Gentiles, you understand the mind of a Jewish person. The nation of Israel was God's chosen people. And Gentiles were everybody else. I mean, we, we have all kinds of racial tensions and arguments that go on in our world. But the Jews, Jewish days and this people, they're like, there's us and there's everybody else. Because they're all a bunch of heathens. They're a bunch of God-haters. 
God deniers. I mean, Paul talks about the barbarians and the Scythians. You might read that sometimes. Barbarians and the Scythians. How many of you know what barbarians are? You know what I'm talking about? The, the, them bad people. The Scythians were the people the barbarians were afraid of. These are the people, the Scythians, in some writings, they say the Scythians were so, so horrible that in the field of battle, they would literally drink the blood of their enemies on the field of battle. These were the crazy Gentiles that Paul is saying, we're going to bring them into a corporate body together from all kinds of backgrounds, and they're going to sing the same song He is worthy who was slain to receive glory and honor and power. That's what we're grafting in. And he said, now hold on a second. You have been grafted in, but don't get too full of yourself. He said, because if you think you're somebody because you grafted in, understand the reason they were cut off is because of unbelief. And the only reason you're standing is by faith. We're not here because of our merit. We're not here because of what we've done. We're here because of what he's done, that he's called us to himself, and he grafted us in, and it is the root that supports us and gives us life. All of this is unfolding, and he said, now you have a stewardship to do this work, and he said, and carry it out with a, a fear or a sobriety, where if God spare not the natural branches, take heed that he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward the goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou shalt be cut off. Now he talks about all of this, and we unpacked it all. Verse number 36, we quoted it early. I'm sorry, back up. I want to go to verse number 32. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. And so this is the conclusion. Now, I mind you, again, Paul has written all of this doctrinal information. And, I mean, how many of you would have concluded that, you would just go ahead and stipulate right now, that Paul was the greatest theological mind to ever live? Anybody good with that? All right, anybody want to argue that you, we, you can debate him if you want to when we get to heaven, all right? God used him. He was a choice vessel, right? Uh, as a matter of fact, even when he was being called out, it's the only time the word chosen in that way was used of Paul. He was set apart for a unique purpose, and God used him to give an abundance of revelation. And he writes all of this out, and yet when he finishes writing 11 chapters of redemption, Paul stops, and by the way, it's a good place for all of us to stop, and he goes into doxology. And look where he ends up here, and I love it. I get so excited when I read it. Verse number 33, Paul has written all these theological things, and he says, oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who hath been his counselor? Who hath first given to him? And it shall be recompensed to him again. He's just lifting God up. What a God. All the depths of the riches of the knowledge of God. Man, he said, I'm just overwhelmed with what an awesome God that we serve. Paul does all of that. And man, what, what an amazing way to end it, but he's not done. And he said, so here's the whole purpose of it all. Verse number 36. Here's the whole stewardship argument that we're making here this morning. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. 
I beseech ye, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's not separated. It's connected. You were grafted in. You were given a stewardship. Now take it serious. This is not just a list of things you go home and work on, but it's something that boils out of the inside of us. And I challenge us this morning to see the connection that they were given a stewardship, and because of unbelief, they failed. And you and I, we have an opportunity to be given a stewardship today. When he comes, may he find us faithful. That's all that he's looking for, is faithful servants. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, your word is so, so rich. And Father, our minds are so, so small. Lord, our vocabulary is so limited. And yet, Lord, what an awesome God you are. Lord, I pray, Father, this morning that you would just drive deep into our souls this morning the message of this rejected stone that has become the cornerstone. Lord, the the message of the stewardship that we've been given. Father, we do what we do because of who you are. Lord, I pray, Father, if there be one here that doesn't know you as their Savior this morning, they would come to know you. Holy Spirit of God, give us what we stand in need of. Drive it deep into our souls. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask.